Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Eat Game podcast. Uh, I'm Tom Evans and uh, on this show we aim to educate, inspire and promote the benefits of sustainable, delicious game meat. And this is the first of our weekly podcast talking to some of the country's best loved chefs and restaurateurs. And a real treat then to kick off this mini-series. Today we're going to be talking to Tony Singh, famous for his unique fusion of Scottish and Asian flavours, for which he's so well known. His ability to create a contemporary twist on traditional dishes has very much caught the country's attention, uh, which has led to him becoming one of the most recognisable faces on television as well. So, Tony Singh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me on. Not at all. Thanks for your time. Where do we find you right now? I'm in the kitchen at the moment. Uh, we've got a new street food venue in Bonnie and Wild on St. James's Quarter, Edinburgh. That used to be St. James's Centre, but it's had a multi-million pound uh, rebuild and it's stunning architecture. It's like the walnut whip that you see the golden walnut yeah. whip on the skyline. That's where we are. But our street food is, shh, don't tell anybody, <laughs> all plant-based. Well, that's good. It's the way it's going. Um, I'm, I'm at the other end of the country. I'm literally on the south coast of England, so we are miles away. But it's it's wonderful to have you on. Let's just go back to the beginning a little bit, if we can, Tony. For those that don't know, you're third-generation Sikh. So you're, you're born and bred in Scotland. Is that right? That's right. Born and bred in Leith in Edinburgh. Uh, my dad came to Scotland when he was about four. My mum was born in Glasgow. Uh, the move happened because of partition in 47. They were made refugees. My great-grandparents were. So from just outside Lahore, which is now in Pakistan, from yeah. there to Amritsar, Amritsar, Delhi, Delhi, Edinburgh, which is uh, fantastic for us in God's country, as they say, in Scotland. Lovely. Absolutely. So how early in life then, Tony, did you start showing promise in the kitchen? Uh, was it sort of from school and home economics or was it from a very young age, maybe around the grandparents and your parents? Was food sort of played a big part in, in your culture? Food played a huge part in our culture. I was around my, my gran, my mum, my dad. Everybody's a good cook in the family. I think you find that in quite a lot of Southeast Asian cultures. Uh, the other big thing is the Sikh religion has uh, one of its cornerstones is langar, which is a free communal kitchen. So when we go to our place of worship called a Gudwara, uh, we always partake in langar. And as a child, you were there helping peel ginger, pick the stalks off of chilies, peel onions, and you just grew into that, knowing that food is the staff of life. It's there. It's, it's there to share, make people feel equal. You know what I mean? It's that whole thing of binding people, breaking bread. And from there at home and at school, home economics, you're right. I loved it. Yeah. All the girls were there as well, so it was fun. <laughs> uh, and then just carried on at YTS, uh, went to Telford College, and I'd done in the 761, 762. And the rest, they say, is history. I've worked in some fantastic locations throughout Scotland, the UK, and opened my first restaurant when I was 30. Wow. What a, I mean, what a journey it's been. So what was your first paid job? in the oh. industry and was that an exciting moment for you well first paid job in industry was white yes so youth training scheme for the young chefs out there the older people it was a yacht youth opportunity but we were white yes in the 80s we were paid 27 pound 50 a week right uh, and it was working for scottish newcastle brewery and we were working in a pub everything was made from scratch and i thought wow this is amazing this is the best food in the world and then with the white yes you had to go to one day, day release at college. So we went to Telford College and there my eyes were open. We had amazing lecturers that had worked 
in Europe at Glen Eagles and all the British transport hotels and they showed us all the classic French cuisine. We were put through competitions, took part in Salon Culinaires and yeah, mine was blown to say this is food from around the world, different things. So yeah, it was just amazing that you could start off a scheme working in a pub and then end up cooking for royalty in that around the world. It's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, am I right in saying that you were the first civilian chef on the Royal Yacht Britannia. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Well, that's right. So that was 1999. The yacht was decommissioned from uh, Her Majesty's Service. It was moved up to Edinburgh. So we were there. Uh, we changed it around from uh, the kitchens, well, the galleys for the officer's mess, uh, the seaman's mess, put in a pastry. We'd done everything it was to make it usable as a hospitality venue. So yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah, it was really great. And that's where I went on and took part in the ITV Chef of the Year for 2000. Right. So that was the, I think that was the first professional chef's competition on television. And you were, you, you won that? I won that. Yeah. That was it. That was a kickstart first time <laughs> on telly. Did you know the people that you were up against at the time? Well, she was, it was luminaries of the industry. It was my peers. It was people that taught me. I was up against Jeff Bland. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm Jeff the Chef. We ran Cali at the time. And by one, all these amazing, talented chefs. So to get through, I was stunned. And then yeah. to win was amazing. Well, the talent's there. What was the one job, Tony, along the way, I'd be interested to know, that kind of really helped you gain an idea of what was needed to make it as a chef? Maybe one job perhaps that opened your eyes more than any other. I would say working on the Royal Scotsman train. On the train, right, yeah. yeah. On the train. So after the YTS and everything finished college, we started work at the Balmoral Hotel, which was the North British. It was the North British. It had just been bought over and changed to this amazing five-star opulent hotel that the North British used to be, but it was a, a trust a British transfer hotel. So this was privately owned. And there we worked with chefs from around Europe. So there was... Uh, chefs from Denmark there, a lot of Italians, a lot of Germans who were thrown into the kitchen. I've seen how a large uh, traditional hotel worked, all the sections, uh, all the hierarchy, all the discipline. So that was it. And while I was there, uh, the Royal Scotsman train used to come into Waverley Station. It still does come into Waverley Station. The guests would come up, obviously, and they would stay in the hotel. And the chef on the train at the time was Graham Coburn. And we got on really well, worked with Graham from then for a few years in different positions and different places. But he needed a chef because his sous chef was off. And I was lucky enough to go on for a fortnight. And that was super intense, but super exhilarating. We made everything. You yeah. worked six days a week. You got up in the morning, there was a different scone for the guests, porridge, biscuits, everything wow. from as soon as I woke up to the finish. It was so intense and hard, but it was amazing. And that's where one of my love of game came from. So we travelled through the highlands and we met the gamekeepers and everything like that. It was just, it was amazing, totally amazing. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to go back on the train as a sous chef for a couple of seasons as well. So that would say that was the thing that really opened my eyes to what a chef should do, could do and what it could take you to. And working with so many different nationalities at that early stage in your career, I guess, I mean, you must have been taught a lot and learnt a lot of different culinary cultures and techniques well, definitely. I learned how to swear in different cultures really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my As second question about it. Yeah. I said, that, 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 that was the first thing you learned. But no, it was different ways of working and you see their mentalities. But it was a, it was a, a very regimented um, kitchen. So it was amazing to see, like you said, 
different approaches to everything. Yeah. So it's really good. So uh, the marrying of spices is sort of at the core of your creations. I think that's that's what makes your food so unique. So how much trial and error uh, has there been over the years uh, from the experience you've gained to work out what works and what doesn't work? Well, with being around space all your life and around great produce, you've got a real good understanding of what, well, what you classic combinations, yeah? Uh, sweet, sour, all these things that will work together in some spaces to either add that perfume or add a, a warmth or a depth or a smokiness. So you've got a good understanding. I would say error-wise, I kept away from anything weird and wonderful because it's like, why would you, why would you pair loads of juniper with a delicate fish? Or, right, uh, just to be different, it's, yeah. Yeah, well, this is it, you yeah. know what I mean? The, 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 you can, and you know what I mean? I think you could probably build a sauna around whatever you want to put with product, but it has to taste good. Yeah, and course. that's what led me most had to taste good. And uh, when you've got a family of uh, people that all cook, you kind of mess about with their food. You get told really quickly that's rubbish. Sure. <laughs> you learn pretty quick, yeah. I mean, yeah. you've said many times before that Scotland has the best produce in the world. Mm-hmm. Why is that, do you think? Because if you look at it, right, we're all caught up in this locality. Britain is not a huge island. Everything's local, really, if you look at it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I was reading somewhere recently, Thomas Keller at the French Laundry, he gets his butter from a lady that's 500 miles away, and that's local to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. What's local? Everything should be local to everybody. We champion Scotland because we're, we're in Scotland. I've been brought around this stuff. You've got this amazing, lush countryside. You know what I mean? You've got these lovely green fields for the beef, for the lamb. You know what I mean? You've got that temperate climate, you've got the autumn, you've got all these wild mushrooms, you've got game, it's anything in, and, and the seafood speaks for itself. You know, I mean, we've got pristine waters off the west coast, uh, the North Sea, for the trawling and everything, it's just fantastic. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, your haggis pakora is, is one of your signature dishes. I, would you ever use haggis from anywhere else in the world? Uh, no. To say that, I've never tried haggis from anywhere else in the world, uh, apart from in America, and I'm amazed that I like to call it haggis. It's horrendous. Is it? What's the, uh, what's the difference? Have they just got it completely wrong? Well, I think that whole thing, because they can't put the pluck in there, so they can't use the lungs or the esophagus or anything. So right. texturally, it's not, not as nice, and that depth of flavour, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think they're a bit too safe when it comes to the amount of fat and spice as well. It was, just, it was totally alien wow. when I tasted it. That's interesting, really interesting. Well, listen, Tony, let's let's talk about cooking specifically with game meats and and your relationship uh-huh. with it. What are your what are some of your big hitters? Some of your favourite game based creations? Uh, I would say using venison haunch, and we make a we cook it like a North Indian Kashmiri style with black cardamom, peppercorns, Kashmiri chilli. So it adds a smokiness, and it's really slow cooked, and it keeps that moisture in there because it's so lean. We can add butter at the end or rendered down lard. It's, it's just a, a fantastic dish. Yeah. Great sharing dish. It's visually really good. You pop it on the table, you know what I mean, with all the accompaniments, it's lovely. Which game meats offer you the most versatility when you're creating something new? I would say venison because, A, as a restaurant, you want to sell what you buy. So customers yeah. are relaxed with it. I think all game offers that versatility. If you can work with one game item, you can work with them all. My favourite is hair. I love hair. Right. The strength of it, it's strong flavour so it must be we have a game nothing else tastes like games we want something gamey have something gamey yeah but I think people are uh, we need to bring them along on the journey so it's not about scaring them off and I think there's the education's there more 
people don't hang their meat or their game birds as much. So it's not as pronounced, you know what I mean? It's this kind of, get rid of all the myths. People are still put off about game because of a bad experience back in the 80s or 70s or yeah. whenever it was. Well, the cost of living the way it is at the moment, I think people might think, you know, game meat is just too expensive now, but there are cheaper ways of doing it, aren't there? For, you know, for example, picking up a cheaper venison cuts that maybe suit slow cooking or just cooked right. I mean, they, those cuts can be absolutely beautiful. So I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are with the reputation of game meat at the minute and people's, the general public's perception of it. I think the perception's not changed. I think it's uh, all about, it's landed gentry food. It's still expensive. Unless you, you've got friends or family or some link to the countryside and country pursuits, you know it's uh, it's a great sustainable uh, protein. It's it's ethical. It's, it's the freest range you can ever get. And I think the problem is, is getting out of the head. The problem is, it's all the prime cuts again. And the prime cuts are going to be expensive. They yeah. need to use the the cheaper cuts. Even if you look at rabbit, I mean, if you get a rabbit here, use the legs. It's fantastic. Comfy them down. Add that, and it, because it's so lean, it's, I think people overcook it. Quite a lot of the recipes we've done for Eat Game, we've done the street food stuff. There's a fantastic uh, Chinese burger there, it's the bacon fat that's in there, so there's some pork belly, sorry, that adds the fat that makes it wonderful. Right. So you need to add that fat, and I think people are still frightened of fat. There's good fats and there's bad fats, so you add fat for flavour, and this is the thing. And it's, it's for people that want to cut down on processed meats or they want to have a and there is a healthier diet with less meat. I think game is a fantastic way forward. Uh, I know uh, the the whole plant-based thing is is gathering traction. I think a variety in your diet is great. Like we've just opened a, a plant-based restaurant, so yeah. I'm there. It's the thing is, it's it's getting that message across. This is good meat. It's good for you. Well, it's it's we need the next generation to embrace game meat don't we make it more mainstream yeah. and, and i totally. guess from there we can build and if there's going to be a big focus on healthy eating which it seems to be at the moment yeah you know, it should game meat should be front and center in, in my opinion because of those nutritional values that it brings totally no no totally i, I totally agree but it's how do we engage them yeah. and that's the thing i think more pop-up restaurants it's that whole kind of thing it's it's getting a message across and make that distinction you know what i mean it's people have got set ideas in their head and it's really hard to move them. Sure. Uh, it would ha obviously helps if you have a trusted local supplier. Uh, you know, the countryside community will often have that. How important is that relationship with your suppliers for you in terms of game meat? Well, first of all, where do you go? Do you have a, a number of trusted people that, that you go to for your cuts? Yeah, we've got fantastic supplies. We've got Burnside Farm Foods. We've got Campbell Prime Meat. We've, we've got fantastic supplies we've used forever. And I think... The, the chill chain is super important, but I think one of the things that we've missed is if you leave a game to play, they'd come in the, your kitchen door, they would offer you some stuff, that's gone now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that, 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 that's a great bit of British food tradition that's disappeared. You know what I mean? These guys that do it for a living, they're not going to give you anything that's going to be high risk, but it's gone. I understand why they're doing it. I don't think it was the right decision, but it's there. What do you do? That's really interesting. Really interesting to get your take on it all. Um, so, Tony, what can we read into the fact that you've kind of moved away from owning and running and cooking in a restaurant to more pop-up restaurants, as you said, private dining? Is this because, do you think there's been a change in, in people's dining tastes? I think there's been there's been pop-ups for a while. I've been doing pop-ups for a while because either fun. 
I'm at a position where I can do work that is fun, so I'm definitely do that. The private dining is one of the best things I've done because at the end of the day, when you're in a restaurant, you're in the kitchen, you never meet your guests. Like once in a while you pop out of that set, but you're a bit stressed, you're running the restaurant. With the private dining at my house, you're there, the, the guests are in the kitchen. So they come to you, don't they? Which is quite they a unique idea, me. yeah. Yeah, they come to me, they're in my kitchen. And it's like just having your friends around. So that's fantastic. I think we'll see more of that. I think the biggest thing with these two pop, the pop-up and the private dining thing is hospitality. I think it's really hard to give that level of hospitality now in restaurants because there's always that pressure of turning the table, coming in, and there's all these things that you have to have in place totally because it's a business. Sure. A deposit on your credit card, all these things. But it, it, I think it distances you from the guest. And it, it is like they are a commodity. They've always been a commodity, but more so, you know what I mean? That veneer is getting thinner and thinner off being that genial boast because it's, it's purely business. And especially w when you're at the level you are, Tony, you know, you're on telly a lot. People want to come and meet you and talk to you as well as experience your food. Yep. And I guess having having the, your Tony Supper Club, as, as you call it, where they come yep. to you, uh, it's a lovely format. So what is it? 10, 12 guests and sort of a, a multiple course menu or? We've got 12 guests. We've got room for 12 guests. So you can either come as a party of 12. You can uh, come as a couple and there'll be maybe couple, another couple and two parties of four. It could be a mix. Okay. Or you could come as a couple and pay for 12. I'm quite easy that way. Uh, it's a multi-course tasting menu. It's very seasonal. Uh, there's paired wines with it. The main thing is you leave well fed and warm and happy. Sure. Well, we get to yeah see you in your natural habitat. Um, well, this is that much more relaxed. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's yeah. good fun. Yeah, what an experience for people. Um, Tony, it's been great talking to you. Just a quick one here on uh -huh. the future for you. I mean, first of all, it's worth pointing out Tony Singh MBE here. This is uh -huh. such um, uh -huh. so many little accolades throughout your career, but this is a big one. Do you remember that moment you first heard that this was coming your way? Was it a letter in the post or? Yeah, well, actually, we were in London. We were filming something, and on the way back up, I got a phone call from my agent at the time, and she said, "Which comes from a letter from the palace? Would you like an MBE?" So it was fantastic. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like a bolt out of the blue. It was uh, super. It was Does it really... mean a lot to you? Because I think some people are far too modest to embrace it fully. I, 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 it does mean a lot to me. Uh, but obviously, it was. I said I have to have a chat with my family yeah. before I said yes, because it's still with being a member of the British Empire, that link with the empire, it's a double-edged sword. And then we looked at uh, the thing is, for the bad stuff and the good stuff, on balance, it's a accolade that was for my service to the restaurant industry, charity work, and it shows that somebody that starts at a YTS can get anywhere they want. So yeah. I think if you can see it, you can do it. So it's a positive message for other young aspiring chefs or anybody else that wants to do well. And I, I guess it opens up doors, doesn't it? And there's charity opportunities there. So mm -hmm. that kind of, yeah, the benefits of it are there to see. Well, it's it's wonderful. It's well-deserved. Um, Tony, not long. We're going to let you go shortly back to the kitchen. Uh, each podcast uh, on our Chef mini-series, we finish the same way with a quick-fire round of questions designed to cut straight to the truth of your likes and dislikes. So I'm going to fire okay. these at you if that's all right. Go for it, Tom. Right, gravy or jus? Gravy. Pie or casserole? Pie. Pigeon or pheasant? Pigeon. Leg or breast? Mm, depends what animal. Yeah. I would say breast. Carrots cut in battens or carrots cut in rings? 
Battens. Battens. Chips or roast potatoes? Ooh, good chips. Chips. Uh, choose one to cook with for the rest of your life. Butter or olive oil? Butter. Chocolate dessert or a cheese board? Both. <laughs> uh, cocktail or a pint? Both again. And finally, eat in, Tony, or eat out? Eat out. Eat out. Absolutely. You do enough cooking in. Um, and yeah. this is my final question to you, Tony. Thanks so much for that. No my final question. If I was to force you to change career, step into another profession, what would you choose? Oh, a millionaire playboy Instagram influencer. I think that's out there now. I want to be one of them. Well, I've bagged that, so I'm afraid <laughs> that you've got to choose something else. Well, I would have to be, uh, I'd love to be a meek uh, nice uh, blacksmith out. Oh, great. What a skill. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. That'd be amazing. amazing. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to do that. Fabulous. Um, it's been lovely chatting to you. Any more TV appearances on the horizon? You've done so many over the years. Uh, we've just finished cooking with the stars, the Saturday kitchen. We've got something under wraps. Fingers crossed that'll come out soon and I'll be able to tell you then, Tom. Fabulous. And just just finally, just tell us the latest project you're working on. You're working on a uh, plant-based pop-up, yeah? So, yeah, I'm working on, I'm, I'm, we're in uh, Bonnie and Wild. Which is Scotch Marketplace in St James's Quarter in Edinburgh. It's called Raj Chat. It's uh, Indian street food, but it's all plant based. Hopefully, you'll be seeing them around the country. We're looking at rolling them out. Fabulous. The brilliant Tony Singh. Thank you so much for coming on the Eat Game podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Have a great day. Cheers. So, my guest next week for you is another famous face, Michelin star chef Glyn Parnell. You know, I wrote, um, I think, uh, years ago at school about what I wanted to be when I was older. And my dad took it out on my 40th birthday. And he had on there, you know, I want to open a restaurant in Birmingham and feed businessmen and people in Birmingham. I want everyone to come to Birmingham to eat my food. And that's pinned up in my kitchen at home. And the day I stopped feeling about that, about food and my city, is the day I'll hang up the apron, if I'll be honest. So owner and head chef of Purnell's restaurant in Birmingham, Glyn Purnell, will be on next week's podcast. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, as every Monday for the next six weeks we'll bring you a different conversation from one of the country's best-loved chefs. Thanks so much for listening. The Eat Game podcast is a Media Cage production, and we'll see you next time.